appreciate everyone again being here this morning. I want to uh, welcome you and, and encourage you this morning with the lesson. And the lesson goes along with what we just read there about leading a quiet life and attending to our own business and working with our hands. So this morning I want us to consider a few things about this and let's talk about what it means to work and the idea here of working till Jesus comes. Of course, we'll probably recognize that from a song title, and we're going to sing that song at the end of our time here together this morning. But the sentiment there is, is well taken in that there's work to be done. We have things to do. Paul here writing to the Thessalonians, he says that this ought to be your business to lead a quiet life and, and to work with your hands and to mind your own business. In other words, you have things to do, you have work to do, and do that work. Now, in this context, is, as he says there from verse 12, that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. The work that, that Paul is specifically talking about is the, the, the labors that that would produce income for us so that we can take care of our families and we can take care of our loved ones and we can take care of those who have need. But also in this is we, we get the idea here that we have uh, things to do. We're not to be wandering aimlessly in this world. Uh, we have things to do. We have jobs that we need to do and those jobs provide for our families and that's all well and good and prescribed to us in Scripture. Um, but there's also spiritual work that needs to be done. There's lots of work that needs to be done in the kingdom. And that's what we want to focus in on this morning. Now, we're going to have some overlap, and you'll see what I mean as we look at some examples about working with our hands and spiritual work. And this, sometimes those things are, are far apart, but sometimes they overlap. Um, we'll look at that this morning also. But the idea I want to get uh, over to us is that there's work to be done and the lifetime of that work is our lifetime. We don't get to rest in this world. Our rest comes when this life is over. So we'll work till Jesus comes really does mean something. It means we have work to be done until we're no longer of this earth. So I want to start this morning by thinking about God's work. Because God is not without work himself. And the easiest thing that probably pops to our mind right away is his work in, in creation in the very beginning. We read about that in Genesis 1, where he talks about how God created everything. There, there it is in very simple terms. In day one, he created the heavens and the earth and the light. Day two, it was the firmament and the expanse. And day three, the dry lands and the plants. And day four was the sun and the moon and the stars and the fish and the birds on day five. And, and then on day six, more animals and man was created. We talked in our Bible class this morning about that some and, and God's power displayed in that he created everything in this universe in six days. Now, he could have done it instantaneously. 
He could have done it over a million or billions of years. He could have done all those things are options for the powerful God that we serve. But scripture tells us that he did this in six days, and there's a precedent for it laid down. We'll talk about that in just one moment. But if you're in Genesis uh, chapter 1, at the, at the end of uh, the creation, the end of the six days, in verse 31 it says, And God saw that all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So God's creation, not only was it powerful and, and, and incredible that he could do this to create something out of nothing, but he did it in such a way that everything that he gave us was very good. In chapter 2, verse 1, it reads, beginning, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and they're all their hosts. And now I want us to focus in on this part of the, the first week. It says, verse 2, And on the seventh day God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. So God sets a precedent here. He sets a precedent for work and rest. Did God really need to rest on the seventh day? You think that it, it was taxing for God to create everything? Absolutely not. But he set a precedent in doing this. And we know that this is what the Sabbath under the law of Moses goes back and points to. God wanted his children under the law of Moses to rest on that seventh day in, as an, uh, a memorial to the work that he did. For six days he worked, on the seventh day he rested. That carries over into the law of Moses. And so the Sabbath day, as in the Ten Commandments, to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, that is that precedence working itself over into the law of Moses and for the children of Israel to remember what God had done and to remember that there was a time of work and a time of rest. Now in the law of Christ, we don't recognize the Sabbath day as a day of rest anymore. We recognize the first day of the week as a time to come together and to worship him, worship our God. But there's a rest that's still there, but now that rest has been shifted, and we're going to talk about that as we go. But let's understand something else about God and his work. There was time, uh, or there was work given to redemption. So God in those first six days worked and, made the, and created all things, and on the seventh day he rested, but God's work was not done. His work of creation was done. His work of giving us all that we need to sustain life on this earth was done. But there was still work on his part to be done. Now, the scheme of redemption we, all, we know, we've studied recently, was put in place before God even did all of that. But the scheme of redemption, what we read about in his providential hand carrying that through, well, where do we read about that? Well, I'll tell you, we read about that in the rest of the Bible. We have those days of creation there in Genesis chapter 1. Chapter 2, we read about um, the, the, the making of man and woman. And then chapter 3 is when uh, man sinned against God. And the rest of the Bible talks about the redemption of man. The redeeming of man back from his sins to be in that relationship with God. And so 
That's the work that God is doing throughout the rest of Scripture. Also, let's understand this, that when Jesus came to this earth, he completed his mission. Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 1. As I mentioned, there was work that God done, had done in the beginning, and then the redemption of man is what we read about in the remaining, the remaining uh, scriptures. Jesus comes along and he completes the mission. In Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Now listen to this. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he inherited a more excellent name than they. So when Jesus came and he completed his ministry, and he ascended back to heaven, it says here, the Hebrew writer tells us that he sat down at the right hand of God. And I can tell you, and we're going to look at a couple of other places, one here in just one second, about what that symbolizes when Jesus sits down at the right hand of God. It symbolizes that his work is complete. It tells us that what Jesus' mission was, was to come to this earth to minister to the people, to tell them about the law, his law that was going to be coming into, into power. That through him you can be saved from your sins. And then he was crucified, and on the third day he arose, and some 50 days later he ascended into heaven. And his work was complete when he sat down at the right hand of God. In Revelation uh, chapter 3 and verse 21, Jesus himself speaking, he says, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So that shows us the idea of a completion of the work being done and the rest that would come after. Jesus' work had been done. So when he goes and he sits down at the right hand of God, his work is done. And in this he tells us if we overcome, if we are faithful to the end, as he's speaking to the churches there in Asia, the early parts of Revelation, he says, if you overcome, I will grant to you to sit down on my throne with me. So there's the idea of, of working, of spending our, our time on this life and, and overcoming uh, sin and being faithful and found faithful in the end. And then we have that rest where we can sit down with Jesus as he has sat down with his father. Some precedents set there. Let's talk a little bit more. Let's look at some examples now. Go with me back to uh, Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. I want to look at a few examples here pretty quickly from Scripture that show us about work and, and give us some idea of what man is engaged in or what man was engaged in and some examples and some lessons that we can learn. We know the story of Noah and the ark very well. 
Genesis chapter 6 tells us about how God had become displeased with mankind because they were continually, their thoughts were continually on evil, and he decided that he was going to wipe out mankind, and he was going to do that through the means of a flood. But there was this one man, Noah, and if you look there in verse 8, um, it says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And also in verse 9, it says these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. So there's this one man in amongst the, a very wicked uh, people that found favor with God. And we know how the story goes that it's only eight people that are going to be redeemed. It's only eight people that are going to be on the ark that are going to survive the flood. And Noah spends 120 years building an ark. And during that time, we also know that he was a preacher of righteousness. Second Peter 2 and verse 5, Peter lets us know that about Noah. That he was indeed telling the people around him about the righteousness of God. And he was himself faithful and righteous uh, and verse 22 of Genesis 6 says thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him so he did so God Noah followed after God and followed all the instructions that he gave him for building the ark and he was also a preacher of righteousness so during that time he was also telling other people about God but how many people were saved as a result of his work eight the flood was something incredible. Janae and I were talking recently um, about, you know, we learn these stories as, as children and then we kind of skip over them as adults and don't really go back to, to, to flesh out some of the details and see the amazing things that happened. If we think about, just quickly, because I have to talk about this, about, think about physically about how the earth was flooded. And it says in the story um, over in chapter 7, verse 20, that the water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered. So I, I don't know that the physical world was the same in those times. It could have been changed by the flood. But as we know the world today, Mount Everest is the highest point on the face of the earth. It's some 29,000 feet. So the water, if we use that as a standard, the water was 22 and a half feet over that. Now that might seem like, well, just 22 and a half feet, that's not very much. But we're talking about all the surface of the, of the earth. Where did all that water come from? It's not enough rain to do that. And certainly we know that the rain is a cycle. And so it's not, it can never rain enough to cover the, the world that much. But it talks about how the fountains of the deep were opened. Isn't it amazing how God was able to accomplish that? That's the power that God had. And through all this, God was telling Noah, you've got to build this boat, and here's how you build it. It's out of gopher wood, it's this wide, it's this tall, it's got a window in it, it's got a door, you've got to put the animals in it. Noah was working with his hands, physically doing things to build this ark over this time period, but he was also building his own deliverance. He was building his own vehicle for deliverance to save him and his family from the flood. So the work that Noah was doing was righteous and it was inspired and commanded of God. And he worked to 
deliver himself and his family from the wrath of God. Let's talk about Nehemiah really quickly. We're in our Wednesday night study, we're here in Nehemiah, and we had a good discussion uh, starting last week um, about this man, Nehemiah. Nehemiah came to Jerusalem. He was living in Susa, the capital of the, of the, um, Cal- uh, the um, Persian Empire at the time. And he heard about the, uh, the situation in Jerusalem where the walls were still torn down some 140 years later after the destruction by Nebuchadnezzar in 586. The walls were still torn down, and, it's, and we read there in Nehemiah verses. Uh, chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 about how distraught he was to hear that that it was terrible and so he he he's praying and fasting and he's asking God to to help and 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 rebuilding the walls essentially will, will, will come out of that but we see a man here and just a just a normal man just a run-of-the-mill Jew who was living in exile who heard about the situation in Jerusalem, and he took it upon himself to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. If you look over in chapter 2 of Nehemiah, beginning in verse 11, it says, So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I rose at night and a few of my men with me, and I did not tell anyone what God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except for the animal which I was riding. And he goes on to talk about how he... He surveyed what was going on, and he's looking around, and he, he wasn't telling anybody what exactly his plans were. Um, but he was there under the cover of darkness assessing the job that was ahead of him. And he comes back, and he finally reports to the people, and he says there, verse 17, Then I said to them, You see the bad situation that we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate, and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we may no longer be a reproach. Verse 18, and I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. Here we have just this common everyday man, Nehemiah, who took it upon himself. Now he was in the king's court. This is King Artaxerxes, the the Persian king. He was a cupbearer to that king, and he had a special relationship there. It was very close to the king, and the king, Artaxerxes, let him go back and do this. But other than that, it was, he was, Nehemiah wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't a scribe. He was just a, a Jew who heard about the situation of his homeland, and he took it upon himself to go there and work. Now, again, this is what, kind of where the, the physical work and the spiritual work kind of overlap a little bit because... Jerusalem still, they're still under the law of Moses. They'd already rebuilt the temple. This was the, the capital, if you will, of God's people. And so rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem was in that work that needed to be done as prescribed by God. We, re- we read there about all that God was putting in my mind, Nehemiah said. This was God's project that he set Nehemiah to do. But there was work to be done. And this is just a common man who took that work upon himself because he felt moved by the situation and wanted to be pleasing to God. Let's look at one more man. Let's look at Isaiah. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 6. 
Now here's a little bit different situation. Isaiah had been called to prophesy. He had been called to take the words that, he was, that God was going to give him directly and to tell those words uh, to the people of Judah. To tell them about the impending destruction that was coming to them, how they were going to be carried away, how Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, and they were going to be carried away into captivity if they didn't turn from, uh, from their evil ways. So God commissions Isaiah, we read about that in chapter 6, down in verse 8, it says, Then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. So as God is, is, is posing the question, who's going to do this? Who's going to prophesy? Who's going to tell the people? Who's going to do the work that needs to be done? Isaiah said, I'll do it. Here I am. I'll do it. Verse 9, he said, Then he said, this is God speaking, he said, Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Now, that doesn't sound like the kind of message that is getting through to people, does it? It sounds like Isaiah is going to go uh, prophesy to tell, to proclaim to these people, but they're not going to listen to him. And God's telling him that up front. Verse 11, he said, then I said, Lord, how long? How long, how long do I have to do this? How long is it going to be? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. So you've got to do this, or at least this this is going to go on, and the people are going to be away from God until there's nothing left of them. So the land is going to be utterly desolate. Now, if, if, we, were, if we were commissioning someone to go and do something, you probably wouldn't want to tell them this up front. Isaiah, I want you to go out here and, and tell the people this, but you're going to fail. They're not going to listen to you. It's not a real good pep talk. But we understand what all this means, and we understand that these people's hearts were hardened. And all the preaching and teaching and prophesying that, that Isaiah is going to do is not going to make a difference. Because their hearts were turned already from God. But, in the midst of this, verse 13, he says, Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is in the stump. Now that's some very poetic language, and if we break that down and understand what we all know, that there's the tenth in it, there's still a portion that's still going to have that seed, still going to have life, that's the remnant. There are going to be those who still remain faithful to God. So Isaiah's got tough work, he's got these people to talk to, and they're not going to listen to what he says, but at the same time, there are going to be some that remain. Even though you've got this tough job ahead of you and most people aren't going to listen to you, there are still some that will. There's going to be some that are going to remain faithful through it all. So there's some tough work that these men had. There's Noah. He's got to build an ark. 
And God says, I'm going to flood the earth. No one believed in what Noah was doing. As a result, he and his family are the only ones saved. And there's Nehemiah who just took it upon himself to, to rebuild the walls of, of Jerusalem. And there's Isaiah being commissioned of God to go do a very difficult task. But there's work to be done. Each of these had their distinct work that needed to be done to carry forth God's will. So let's take this on further forward and look at uh, the disciples' work. You know, and, and during the time of our Lord, uh, he had these around him that uh, were working. He had his 12 closest disciples that would later become his apostles, those who were sent out to, to accomplish his will. But there's others, other, more disciples around, and we read in Luke chapter 10 about the 70 that are sent out. Uh, they're sent out ahead of Jesus, and he gives them the instructions. We looked at this last week in regards to uh, a different topic, but um, they're to go out and tell the people about, about Jesus Christ and about the kingdom of heaven. And in that, Jesus begins that by saying, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. There's plenty to be done, but there's not as many people to do it. So you need to go out into this and understanding, again, there's, there's so much work to be done, and there's not enough people to get it done. It's kind of like what God told to Isaiah. Here's this work you need to be done. They're not going to listen to you. But that doesn't uh, mean that the work is not going to go on. That doesn't excuse us from doing the work. Harvest is plentiful. There's plenty to do. And we see that in this example. As Jesus says, there's, there's so many people to reach. There's so much um, to do and so few to do it. Later on, the, the, his apostles... Uh, the, the 12 that are closest to him, 11 at this point, but are going to be greatly commissioned to go out into the world. And we have that recorded for us in Jesus, what we call the Great Commission. Go out therefore and make disciples of all the world, um, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have uh, commanded you. There's work to be done in, in the, the lifetime of, our, of the apostles. Jesus sent them out to get something done. And we read over in Acts, as um, Jesus is uh, ascending back into heaven in Acts chapter 1, that now's the time. I've prepared you for it. I gave you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to baptize you in just a matter of uh, a few hours uh, with the Holy Spirit. I, I, I promise that he's going to come. And now's the time for you to get to the work. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, it says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So the preparation has all been there. They've been given the things that they need. The Holy Spirit is going to be the last thing that they'll need that Jesus is about to give them. And then they got to get to it. You're going to be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to all the earth. So that's what needs to be done. 
that's the work that is ahead of us because the disciples' work, the disciples, uh, we're talking about of Jesus' time, guess what? That's also us. We're the disciples of the Lord. We have the same work ahead of us. There's plenty of opportunity. Think about the world in which we live. It seems that we're drifting further and further away from God. You think there's not enough work to do? There's plenty of work. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. There, we've been commissioned to do that, because Jesus, in commissioning his apostles, he tells them to teach them all that I have commanded you. Well, that's cyclical. So when we, they taught that to them, and then those disciples were to teach others, and so it comes down all the way to us. Someone taught us. Now we've rendered obedience in baptism. If we've done that and we're a disciple of Christ, then it's our job to, to, to carry it on, to keep carrying that mission forward. And we've got to get to it as well. So let's get to it. It's up to us. Look with me over in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 2. You know, the work has been set before us. We are, uh, he goes, in, beginning back up there in verse 4, he talks about that we are um, the choice, or he is the, Jesus is the choice stone, but we're built, being built up as living stones into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. We're like those men, like Noah and Nehemiah and Isaiah. There's work to be done. So we've got to do that work. In 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen race, uh, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who has called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. And you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see how that works? How that comes down to us? We're a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood. There's work for us to do, just like for Noah and building an ark and saving him, his family, just like with Nehemiah and rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, just like Isaiah and carrying forth uh, the, the, the word of God and the prophecies to the people. There's work for us to do, just like for the disciples. They were sent out to tell about the kingdom of heaven. That's what we have to do. We have to tell them about Jesus Christ and, and baptize them and make them uh, or, or teach them about him as we go forward. And there's work to be done. So we have that work ahead of us. Fields are white. It says in another place, our, our Lord says that. In Luke 10 there, it talks about how the harvest is plentiful. There's work to be done. But, on the other side, our rest awaits. I went back to Genesis to, 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 to let us know about that precedent that God set about work and rest. God took six days to make the earth, and then on the seventh day he rested. There's the precedence. Jesus came to this earth. He worked while he was here. He talks about how he was moving around, did not even have a place to lay his head. 
He worked while he was here, and then he sat down at the right hand of God. His work was completed. And then it's been handed over to us, for us to continue that work, to continue to proclaim the gospel, to continue to ring out the message about Jesus Christ. So it's up to us to work, and then there's a rest that's been promised to us. Go with me to Psalm 95. Psalm 95. I want to read here beginning of verse 6. Psalm 95 beginning of verse 6. It says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you would hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as, in, as at Mirabah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation, and I said that they are a people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, truly, they shall not enter into my rest. Now, we can pick up on a few things in there and understand what's being spoken about there. Do not harden your hearts as in Mirabah and Massa. Those are the times when, when uh, the people were grumbling against God about taking them out of Egypt and, and bringing them into the wilderness. And how he says he loathed those people for 40 years. That was the time that they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because they did not trust in God. And he says there, verse 11, Therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter into my rest. Those who were disobedient, those who erred, those who did not remain faithful to God, he says, you're not going to enter into my rest. Interesting language, and especially in light of what we read about in Hebrews chapter 3. Go with me there. Go to Hebrews chapter 3. The Hebrew writer picks up on this to tell us about the idea that there is a rest that awaits us. In Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, he says, Take care, brethren, lest there should be any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm till the end, while it is said, Today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts, as in when they provoked me. And that's a reference back to Psalm 95, which we just read. Verse 16 says, For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses. And with whom was he angry with for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, those whose bodies who fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So the Hebrew writer is saying, look, because they were disobedient to God, they were not going to enter into the rest that he had prepared for them. So now listen to what he says beginning in verse, uh, chapter 4, Hebrews. He says, Therefore let us fear lest, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. 
For indeed we have, uh, have good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them. He's talking about those, those that fell in the wilderness, those who were coming out of, of Egypt. It did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. They didn't believe. They didn't have faith in God. Verse 3, For we who have believed enter that rest. Just as he has said, As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Verse 4, For he has thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day, And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, They shall not enter my rest. So remember, God, six days creation, the seventh day he rested. And that rest is what he is, has prepared for us. That rest is awaiting us when this life is over. Verse 6, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as it had been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Maybe a little complicated for us to understand, but what he's saying is God set up the day of rest. Those people who were disobedient did not enter into that rest. Now in Psalm 95, through David, David talks about a time of rest that is still yet to come. And he says that today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. There's opportunity for us still to enter into the rest that God has prepared. Verse 8, he said, For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So again, we go from uh, the Exodus and then Joshua, who, was, who would bring them into the promised land, and then still after that is David, through the psalm, talking about a rest to come. So it tells us that it wasn't the promised land that would be their eternal rest. It's still yet a rest to come. So what is that rest? What is the rest that is still yet to come? Verse 9, there remains therefore a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. God rested from his works. The he there earlier in that said the one who has entered into his rest himself also rested from his works. Jesus has completed his works. After God had completed his works and then we enter in to rest after our works. Verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fail or fall through following the same example of disobedience. Just like those whose bodies fell in the wilderness, they did not enter into the rest. If we're disobedient, we're not going to enter into the Sabbath rest that God has prepared for us. See how all that comes together as the Hebrew writer ties that all together and helping us to understand that the same disobedience and not believing God will keep us out of heaven. What we want to have when our life is over, we want to hear those words that our, our Lord speaks about in the parable, about the parable of the talents. 
how those who managed their talents and, and, and did what the master asks of them, when he comes back, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That's what we want to hear from our master. We want to know that what we have been given, what we have been blessed with, we have put to good use. And we are greeted with these words, well done, good and faithful servant. And we enter into that rest that God has promised for us. So it kind of comes down to a, a big question. What, what is our purpose in life? Why are we here? What is it that we are to do? Well, I hope that this lesson has already uh, explained that. That we are here to do the work of God. That we are here to carry out His will for all people, and that is for all people to be saved, for all of them to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's God's will, and therein, that's our work. That's what we're here to do. We're here to continue to spread the word about God and his righteousness, just as Noah did in his day, just as the work that Nehemiah did in his day would continue the temple worship, just as Isaiah before Nehemiah would tell the people that to, to turn from their wicked ways before it's too late. That's the work that they needed to do. There's work for us to, to do as well. I want to leave you with this from Ecclesiastes. We talk about the, the, the big things in life, the big picture. You know, Solomon took it upon himself to, to take on these, these things. And he writes it in, in such beautiful language and the things that he, he comes across, but this applies to what we're talking about. In Ecclesiastes 9, beginning in verse 7, he says, Go then, eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. You know, it's okay to be... Uh, happy in this life. It's okay to be uh, satisfied with the things that God has blessed us with because look what it says there. Let your clothes be white all the time and let not your oil be lacking on your head. You know, as long as we're keeping ourselves cleansed from sin and we're doing the work of God, then we can be happy in this life and be satisfied with the things that we're doing. Enjoy life with the woman you have loved uh, all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Be happy with what you are doing, keeping yourself clean and anointed, you know, doing the work of God and, and staying away from sin. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you're going. Sheol is that... Old Testament word, the old Hebrew word rendered, same as Hades in the New Testament. That is the realm of the dead. When you get there, there's no planning. There's no activity. There's no knowledge of wisdom. It's, it's over. By the time you reach the realm of the dead, there's nothing else that you're going to do. You are going to be in arrest one way or the other. I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors and neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning nor favor to the man of ability. It doesn't always work out like the, like the world says it should. The fastest don't always win the race. Uh, and the battle isn't always won by the great warriors. 
the, the wise people don't always eat well, and the favor of, of men doesn't always come towards those who are wealthy. Time and chance overtake them all. Whatever it is we have in this world, it, we're subject to time and chance. So it's okay to be happy. It's okay to, to do those things. God's already approved your works. Be happy in those things. But understand that we work and then we rest. As long as we're of this world, our work remains. There's no retirement. Uh, there's no earthly retirement in the spiritual realm. We'll work till Jesus comes. That's the song that we're going to sing. This song, I hope, will resonate with us a little bit more in the light of this lesson. That there's work to be done, and the conclusion of that work is when the Lord returns. Till then, we've got to work. Till then, there's things to be done. Till then, there's plenty of work in the vineyard to be done. Uh, the harvest is plentiful. The fields are white. And there's too few of us to get the work done. That shouldn't dissuade us from, from, from our work that we have to be doing. So let's work. Let's continue to work. Let's keep working until the Lord comes.